the currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. Coming up on this Easter episode of The Currency, Head of Strategic Investments at Fexco, Tony Wilson, will be in studio to share his insight on how Irish businesses can access lucrative growth in global markets. Also, we'll have our usual international markets update. Joining us this week, Anthony Limbrick, covering tail risk hedging and high-frequency trading. But first, joining me in the studio for our panel is Senior Equity Analyst and Fund Manager with Davy Aidan Donnelly and Research Professor with the Economic and Social Research Institute, the SRI, Alan Barrett. You're both very welcome to the show. Now, let's begin with taking a look uh, into the impressive economic recovery which uh, Ireland has spearheaded since uh, exiting the, the Troika and returning to open markets. Uh, some time ago, IBIC came out with a very, very positive report. Um, Aidan, this time five, five years ago, could you have predicted that Ireland would be uh, out uh, in the markets on its own with no credit line, uh, no safety net, and uh, foreign direct investment going from strength to strength? Well, I think if you had predicted that, they might have been coming around to, to, to take you off to a, a padded cell somewhere, to be quite honest with you, because it certainly looked very, very uh, bleak at that stage. I think, to be fair, you know, over the last few years, there's obviously been a lot of very difficult decisions made, uh, both at the, the government level and at a personal level, I think, from, from, from people within the country. But I do think, you know, we're through it, but I, you, you're always worried that just because you reach a point, people think, well, that's it, and it's done. I, I, I think it's a, a work in progress, and certainly we're probably a lot further ahead um, than you would have thought we would be five years ago. What do you remember, uh, Alan, as being the, the sort of the, the, the darkest hour, as it were? Oh my God! Uh, th- there were many, <clears throat> but there's no doubt uh, some of the Lenehan budgets. Um, they really were quite extraordinary, and uh, I can sort of personally remember sitting through one of them uh, here at Newstalk, actually, because I remember doing the budget coverage with uh, with George Hook, and uh, it was almost like a tsunami coming at us. And uh, it may be the, the the emergency budget. Uh, I think you know there was a budget midway uh, during the year. So very very often when there are tax changes in the budget, and say he like did things like increased the top rate. Uh, uh, marginal rate, you didn't have a sense immediately how it was going to impact on you because you were going to have to do the mathematics. But when things like the universal social charge got announced uh, and then of course in another budget it got doubled and you knew it was essentially on all your income, well the mathematics were straying you straight uh, in the face and I think we all know now as we, we look at our paychecks uh, just how severe the universal social charge actually is. Uh, the other like remarkable announcements during that period uh, related to the public safety cuts and if you remember there were two large chunks. Uh, the first was done through the, the pension levy. I mean, this was again early in the, in the process and obviously it was thought that if you simply went out and, and said we're going to cut your pay, that wouldn't fly. Uh, so again, it was, I think Brian Cowan may have announced this in the, in the doll that they were going to start uh, charging the uh, the public servants for their pensions. And again, it was a huge uh, cut. I think it was averaging about 7% or something like that. And then it was about a year later that uh, things had got so bad that all of a sudden it was perfectly acceptable to talk about pay cuts. And this time, rather than dressing it up as a pension levy, 
they just said they were going to go in and put, uh, cut public uh, pay. And I was it, when you talk to international journalists, that's one of the things that always amaze them. That because you know in recessions in general, a lot of bad things happen. But one of the lessons from history is that pay actually tends not to fall. So to see pay uh, being cut in the way it was in Ireland was remarkable. And then of course we had the social welfare cuts as well. So it, it really is uh, it, it is sobering to look back on it. Well, I'm definitely got a sense that uh, everyone mucked in. You know that that. that uh, the Irish, when compared to the, you know, and I don't want to talk out of turn here, but the uh, the Spanish or the Greek or the Portuguese, you get the sense the Irish really got stuck in, and that's probably been part of the recovery. I mean, uh, the only thing I would say though is, uh, given the depth of the recession, wouldn't we have expected a slightly stronger sort of V-shaped recovery rather than than what we've ended up with, which is a a very slow growth uh, uh, recovery? Yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I I think it's interesting because you know when you look at and it's not, it's not a phenomenon, I think, just necessarily in Ireland. You can take the US as well. You had such an unprecedented shock to the global economy. And following on from that, you kind of had a, an unprecedented or an untested set of policy responses from, from uh, various monetary authorities ar- around the world. And I think, you know, we'd, we'd all love to be able to sit back and say, you know what, we have a nice mathematical model for the, the economy. A plus B equals C. And you just plug in the components and it works but I think the, the, the you know there's always going to be the human element there um <clears throat> that will mean that the, the outcomes might not necessarily be as easy to predict and particularly when, as I said, you have su- such a, a shock followed by such, you know, like I think if you looked back even 10 years ago and said to somebody that, you know, you would have central banks going out doing what they did over the last five years, everybody would say there's no way they'd ever do that. Now, you know, the one thing you would have been right is, you know, in terms of trying to predict the, the ECB's actions, you pretty much would have nailed it on the head, but I don't think you'd necessarily <laughs> have, have, have done it in, in, you know, for the, for the, the Chancellor in the UK uh, or, or the Bank of England or, or, or the Federal Reserve. So I, I think, you know, the last few years you've, you've, you've kind of, the, the textbook almost has been thrown out and it, it's, it's really been a kind of a, you know, let's just see where this road takes us. Well, I think you know my views on the <laughs> on the uh, on the ECB. Uh, but to be fair to to Draghi, I think he's he's really had one arm tied behind his back, and the and the problem for the guy is that he's uh, he's left with having to talk it up the whole time. And you know, there comes a point where uh, where words don't work anymore. But one of the most significant and effective decisions made by the Irish government since the economic crash was the uh, promissory note deal. Uh, it's unlikely Ireland would be. Uh, on the open market today, I suspect, if that deal hadn't gone through. But now it seems the uh, European Central Bank is reviewing the legality surrounding um, that uh, deal. We spoke to EU correspondents for the Irish Times, uh, Suzanne Lynch, about this. Uh, This is what she had to say. The key concern here is monetary financing. That is completely prohibited under the EU treaties, Article 123, and the ECB are very, very sensitive about this. They do not want to condone um, an arrangement in which a central bank is look, looks like it's in any way financing um, a government. Aidan, so the, uh, having heard that, the, the, prom- the promissory note deal was, was obviously paramount to Ireland's fast recovery uh, and exit without a, a safety net. I think it's pretty unlikely that the EU is going to deem that it was illegal, but what can Ireland actually do in terms of speeding things up, if anything? And perhaps more importantly, is this not just a direct attack 
uh, keeping the pressure on Ireland just as it's coming up uh, for air uh, to, to, to really get at what's really important to Europe, which is the corporate tax rate, the 12.5% rate. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's, it's the one thing that probably sticks out all the time in, uh, in any dealings that you have with, uh, w- with Europe. It's always the, the corporate tax rate, the corporate tax rate. And whether, you know, the, 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 the stories that float in about multinationals coming in and, and, and utilising the, the low corporate tax rate just to, to, to uh, pay less tax in, in their home nation is always going to be a problem. And I don't think that, you know, I don't think there's any necessarily way around it and they certainly won't be able to, to uh, dictate what the, 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 the corporate tax rate is going to be. But it, it, it's always, I think it's at the background, it's always going to be a stick when it, whenever you're, you're, you're literally just, as you say, coming up for air, whoop, get back down there. <laughs> well, we had, we had, uh, we had uh, Anne Cahill on, who's uh, EU correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Now, she was uh, uh, with us a few weeks ago during the EPP uh, meeting, which occurred in, in Dublin, as you remember. Um, she was uh, reporting on that Congress. Uh, take a listen to what she noticed when German Chancellor Angela Merkel talked uh, Irish corporate tax rate. It was awful. It was an awful moment, actually. It was at the press conference in uh, the government buildings afterwards with just uh, the Chancellor and the Taoiseach. And uh, it was the only time, and I've been watching her very carefully because her facial expressions are very good, and it was the only time she pursed her lips ever so slightly, but she did. So, uh, well, that uh, I think says it all. It, it, it sounded like uh, Angela Merkel had swallowed something awful. Um, Alan, what, what do you feel? I mean, is, is Ireland's government, and I, I realise you, you're not a government minister, but is Ireland's government in a position to negotiate on on a 12.5% corporate tax rate? Yeah, <clears throat> This is a terribly, terribly difficult one. Uh, because at one level, I think a lot of policy people in Ireland, including some of the senior politicians, realise that... Uh, there, there might be a bit of a losing battle here. Um, that you know, over time, the pressure could be such uh, that that they may have to give in. And uh, I mean, as we were touching on earlier on, there, this is something that comes up all the time, and there always seems to be different routes. Okay, and even if it's not, for example, the actual corporate tax rate, uh, there's discussions about the tax base and uh, you know all sorts of structures. So this is a terribly difficult one. But I think, see, the problem for the Irish government here is they always need to send the signal, not just that the corporation tax is going to be. 12.5%, but it will be that forever. Uh, I think they understand that one of the things that appeals to foreign direct investors is not just the rate itself, but this assurances that are always given uh, that this is never going to change. And actually, just to refer back to our, our earlier discussion, I do remember in one of the, the again, the famous Lenehan budgets uh, at the outset of the crisis when he was heaping on the universal social charge and tax increases, he still found some time in the speech to reassure international investors that the corporation tax was going to uh, stay at 12.5%. And it always sort of struck me that this was remarkable in the sort of situation that you're beating up on the, the domestic residents. You still want to make sure that everybody else feels comfortable. So the, the, the sort of the mantra within public policy sectors is you never mention, you never concede for a second that the corporation tax rate is ever going to change. Um, I've been in discussions with people where they say, well, you know, why are you even talking about this? This is never going to change. And they simply will not uh, open up this possibility. So it's it's terribly difficult for them. Uh, I have great sympathy with, go- with the government on this because, again, some people sort of say, well, look, you know, ultimately we might have to give up on this, so why don't we start raising it now and just sort of giving in? That's a really, really big experiment to conduct uh, if you believe that this is an important 
part of the overall economic infrastructure. So it's this this is going to be a tricky one. And I think, to be honest, I think people like Andy Kenny and others are just going to have to put up with Angela Merkel uh, grimacing for a good number of years. I suspect so too. Okay, we're, we're going to have to take a quick break. But coming up, our panel will discuss Troika exits for Portugal and Greece. So please stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. You can tweet us with your comments uh, at thecurrencynt or email thecurrency at newstalk.ie. Before the break, our panellists, senior equity analyst and fund manager with Davey Aidan Donnelly and research professor with the ESRI, Alan Barrett, were casting an eye over Ireland's economic recovery since 2008. But now it's time to move on to the latest perplexing phenomenon uh, currently baffling the Irish Central Bank, and, and that's uh, growthless jobs. Now, we've all heard of jobless growth. Um, Ireland frustratingly, I think, endured that during the early 90s. But, Alan, what is, what is growthless jobs, and, and how is it occurring? Well, I suppose the, the, the phrase comes from the, the observation of two things. One is that we have very significant employment growth uh, in Ireland, and it, it, it really is quite remarkable. Um, I think we're, we, we added something like, you know, 60,000 jobs um, in the last year, so it was about 3% growth. Uh, and in a normal economy, you would think, well, if there's more people working, uh, then that should translate into economic, even, you know, they just no, replicate. Tax revenues. And, yeah, yeah exactly, you know, yeah. so it should be straightforward. But if you look at the Irish GDP figure, uh, certainly the, the sort of the, the first estimates for the year 2013 would show that there was actually a, a little bit of a decline. Uh, so this is kind of hard for people to get their, their heads around. The probable explanation uh, lies in the uh, not overly fast distinction between gross domestic product and gross national product. Okay, so uh, probably most of your listeners are familiar with this notion that GDP uh, takes into account everything that is produced in Ireland, uh, whereas GNP strips out all the multinational uh, repatriated profits in particular. So a lot of people would actually say that GNP is possibly a better measure of something real that happens in Ireland because a certain amount of the uh, the foreign stuff, uh, uh, you know, transfer pricing plays a role there where multinationals trying to book as much profit here as possible. So if you look at the GNP figure uh, for the year 2013, it actually showed uh, very positive growth. I think it was, again, in the order of 3%, which is much more in line uh, with, with the employment figures. Uh, and, okay, so there's always a, a difficulty in interpreting the GNP and the GDP figures in Ireland, but currently one of the big difficulties is this notion, again, that your uh, folks are familiar with, the patent cliff. Uh, so we know in Ireland at the moment we've got this phenomenon that a lot of the drugs that are manufactured here are going off patent. This is, you know, it, it gives the impression that there is a an absolute sort of, you know, plummet in the productivity of people working in these areas. But of course, all that's happening is, is that there's a repricing of what it is they're producing. So all in all, the, 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 the uh, growthless jobs phrase, it, it captures something that's going on there. But I think the reality is if you look at the employment figures and you look at the gross national product figures, it is clear that a recovery is now on hold in, in Ireland, mm-hmm. accepting that, you know, we, we don't want to get overly complacent about it, but it really is very, very good news and quite remarkable, um, as you were saying, given where we've come from. You, you could argue, though, too, I suppose, that it's not dissimilar in the US. You know, you, they've added 
eight, eight and a half million jobs since 2010. And yet the GDP growth in the States hasn't really been that stellar, you know, over the same period. So maybe it's just a kind of a a, a, a function of other things that are going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm always very sceptical of the US employment data because if you're unemployed for more than six months, you fall out of the numbers, I understand. So, uh, But what about youth unemployment here in Ireland? I mean, you know, if you look at the rest of Europe, you've, you've seen youth unemployment climb to sort of astronomic levels where it actually starts impacting the long-term GDP growth rate of those nations because they've they've effectively lost the the, the use of uh, or the tax revenue that they've received from that group. Um, has there been a diaspora from Ireland? I mean, has that been one of the the effects uh, amongst the youth? Well, I mean, there's a number of things going on amongst the youth. I mean, I think the the first thing to always recognise here is that youth unemployment can sound very very high, uh, but remember, it's it, it, the figure only relates to those who are not in education and training. Okay, so in Ireland, we do have a remarkably high proportion uh, of younger folks in training and education. I think it's something like 50 to 60% of the Leaving Cert cohort go into education or training. So when you hear figures like uh, youth unemployment is 30 or 40%, it's not that 30 or 40% of young people are unemployed, it's of, you know, the group who are not in education and training uh, are unemployed. So I think we have to recognise that Ireland does at least have that advantage of a lot of people uh, getting educated and that should be good uh, for the future. The other thing, of course, we have in Ireland is, as you say, the uh, the outward migration of this group as well. And this is actually a huge benefit to the Irish economy relative to the uh, other countries that you've mentioned. Uh, where you have, be it countries or regions that don't have a tradition of out-migration, you do get locked into the lost generation type problem. Uh, that people enter the labour market at a certain point in time, they fail to get a job, they become long-term unemployed, and then if you follow those people for a very, very long time, you always pick up this notion, <clears throat> the scarring is the, the term we, 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 we give it in the economics literature, that if something bad happens to you in the labour market initially, it can stay with you for a very, very long time. But the great advantage in Ireland is that people have a tendency, rather than staying unemployment in Ireland, they will go away. So at least they're maintaining uh, their skills, very, very often actually they're enhancing their skills, so then when they come back to Ireland and the hope that they do when the economy actually turns around, that you you have this group of people who are actually, uh, you know, maintain contact with the labour market. So let me be clear about this. Emigration and forced emigration is a horrible and a difficult thing. Uh, but from an Irish perspective and from a sort of a national perspective, this is actually quite a, a, a positive situation. Now, having said all that, okay, we don't have to worry necessarily about the kids in school. We don't necessarily have to worry about the, the kids who go and emigrate and stay unemployed. There is still a, a, a core group uh, who are left behind and there is absolutely no doubt that we're going to have to make sure uh, that that group is looked after but I'd see it not so much in terms of uh, economic policy and the needs to have this group to sort of make sure the economy is operating this is really a social policy consideration in that you don't want to leave uh, a group of people behind. But we're now going to move on to uh, the latest EU Troika exit. Ireland was the first country to exit uh, the Troika programme they did it alone, there's been no credit line or safety net put in place uh, Portugal looks set to implement a similar exit. Um, the jury's still out on whether Greece is going to need a further bailout. So, um, Aidan, let's begin with Greece. European Group President Jerome Gisselblum said two weeks ago that it was too early to say if Greece would need a further bailout when its uh, EU program finishes at the end of this year and that he would return to the issue in September. 
Fortunately, that'll be after the stress tests, I presume. And uh, whether they need another bailout or not, can we assume that the country um, is is nowhere near an exit from the the troika at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I would have thought so. I, I, I think you know I, the the politicians will play a game, and they, they certainly don't want to admit at this earliest stage that that there's a further bailout required. But ultimately, I don't think it's it's certainly not on a sound of footing as either Ireland or or, or Portugal will be or are currently now. So. I think I think it's probably a moot point either way because I, I think at this stage authorities in Europe are looking back and saying, "Well, look, if we get two or three of the, the problem countries sorted out, if that if the tail is still there at the end of it, and we have to do another one. It it doesn't jeopardise the overall really um, because you know I think when you look at the the five or six, the five pigs as they were originally called, that was really the big problem. You know, now if you can get it just down to maybe one one and a half, things might not be so bad, and certainly wouldn't probably derail the, the European experiment as is. Now, uh, uh, well, I'd agree with that 100%. I think that they, they're going to be pragmatic. And at the end of the day, the goal is to keep the euro together rather than uh, to to create un- unnecessary suffering in, in, in Greece. Now, uh, Alan, EU ministers um, recently signed off on a, a, an 8.3 billion euro loan to Greece. Um, hopefully, it's one of the final major loan installments to the, to the country. But comparing Greece's bailout to Ireland's one, um, there are are really two they appear to be two very different situations higher stakes it would seem and a longer road for greece to return to open markets they've suffered huge deflationary pressures in their country um where where does greece go from here is it always going to be the poor neighbor of europe now I don't think it necessarily has to be um <clears throat> but i think we are sort of entering interesting territory um I think one of the lessons from the Irish exit uh, has been, and this I'm talking here now specifically about the exit without any uh, precautionary credit. Without a safety net, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there was no doubt, I think, that one of the reasons uh, that that a credit line was not sold was that the government understood that there would be conditions attached to it. And I think it was clear that what the government wanted to be able to announce... I would say largely for political reasons was this idea that they, you know we had left the bailout sovereignty had been returned and uh, that this was all, this was all good uh, but I think since the Troika have left uh, there is a little bit of a sense of drift now in terms of economic policy uh, the government still has the mantra of jobs or whatever like that but there's no doubt that the discipline of having sort of quarterly reporting to an outside authority when you were talking about all the things that you needed to get done that is now gone and I think there's a general sort of realisation that the, that disciplining effect has gone and that economic policy is sort of not now being implemented with the same rigour uh, as was previously been the case. Now, translating that then into, into Greece, where I mean, in many ways, the sort of structural issues and the whole plethora of policy issues that Greece had to deal with, I think having an agency like the, you know, or a combined agencies like the Troika there was imposing discipline and was also like sort of giving politicians an out in a sense much more uh, yeah, much no, less I think that's a very strong yeah. point because you have someone else to, to, to lean blame. on and exactly. say to yeah. blame yeah. now it's not necessarily a, a strong yeah. democratic point but from a purely sort of technocratic uh, point of view and in the interest of getting economic policy back on the right track I think that's positive and I mean to come to your question I think if, if Greece does the sort of things there's no reason why Greece should be the sort of you know a basket case economy forevermore but I think without the outside sort of policy discipline or whatever like that well then you'd be 
more worried. Yes, I, well, I, I would tend to agree with all of that. I think that the um, one of the major problems, obviously, for, for for Ireland is if it does drift here, is that bond markets will pick it up very, very quickly, and uh, interest rate shock risk uh, is probably one of the biggest risks that uh, could derail Ireland going forward. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's you know there's a bit of a, in, an international love fest a little bit for for Ireland right now and all things all assets Irish, and I think you know we've seen obviously the the, the government bond yields come down quite a bit, and and you know there's obviously interest in, in terms of property and and and, and very and even the equity markets, but I do think that is ultimately, you know, the, the problem with with momentum money like that is it can it, it can shun you just as soon as love you and and you know it it, it doesn't have to set necessarily have a very significant reason to suddenly move on to the next new thing it's a bit like a child with a new toy everything they're showing yeah, and, and i've heard you know nama saying this and i heard uh, a portuguese economist uh, two weeks ago saying it that they have strong reserves but when you look at sort of 15 billion it's a year's funding or 18 months funding I don't know any single bond investor that ever ever invests over that period of time. So, uh, to me, it does look a little bit more fragile than perhaps is being communicated. The, the risk, I ultimately, is you'll remember years ago there used to be the the term term uh, the bond vigilantes. If, if the bond yeah. vigilantes ever came back, um, you know, I, I think that's ultimately the risk that, that 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 you would face. That you know, for for whatever reason, suddenly a a, a different microscope is used or a, or a different point of view is looked at, and certainly. You know, glass half full, glass half empty. You know, you you, you have a different uh, reaction to the markets. But you know, I, I think you know, as Anne said, that the risk of policy slippage is a real one. I think you know, it is very handy to have if you're a politician to have somebody external to blame. Say, look, it's not us making the hard decisions. We're just being told we have to. If that's yeah. kind of released from you, you just need to almost have the the, the, the fortitude, yeah, yeah. the, the yeah. self fortitude to say, look, we have it's a tough road. We're not out of it, and we have to continue to some extent with what was gone before. And looking at uh, Portugal, uh, do you feel they're in a similar situation? They're about to exit a seventy-eight billion euro uh, program. They're hoping to do that in May. Um, they do have some reserves. But the problem for me there is that their their bonds, none of their bonds are investment grade credit. In other words, they're all below investment grade credit, and and that's with all three ratings agencies. Is that an issue? Uh, does it make it that different from from Ireland? And does it mean that they do need a safety net? Well, I would have always thought that the, the worry in Portugal, again, relative to Ireland, was actually the sort of the the, the actual fundamentals uh, of the economy. In Ireland, for a long time, we we did comfort ourselves even in the uh, the, the depths of the depression. Again, that's notion that the was something fundamentally uh, sound here in terms of the productive base. And that was partly about the, the human capital of the population. It was partly about the willingness of people to invest here. Portugal does not share uh, some of those sort of fundamental points. And uh, I know uh, bond investors may, may think in terms of finance or whatever like that, but just if bringing it back to the actual fundamentals of the economy, I think that that is really where the worry about Portugal is. And just to, to wrap this up, do, do, um, do the sort of impending bailouts that the, 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 the Greek bailouts out and, the, and, and Portugal leaving uh, the Troika um, have an influence on, on Draghi's current policy or is it much more that the Germans really don't want 
um, QE to take place because they want inflation to remain below two percent. Well, I think the, the the there has always been a psychological hang up in 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 Germany and in the Bundesbank in particular about quantitative easing because it's seen to be bailing out the uh, the bad behaviour of the the periphery for so long. But I think it's interesting in the last ECB meeting that you know it pretty much looks like quantitative easing is back is fully on the agenda for for the ECB. They kind of up to that point had been in a in a uh, or certainly the market perception was that they were they were sitting and saying well look we're only going to act if we really really have to now i think given the fact that ireland is out of the bailout portugal could be coming out of their bailout if you're only left with one problem child it's a little bit easier so maybe that takes the shackles off them and they can they can they can actually move on and, and start doing some of the other methods that that have been open to other monetary authorities well it's great to see ireland uh, you know coming out of its uh, program in such strong form i hope we haven't insulted the rest of europe and uh, that's all we have time for on, on that unfortunately my thanks to uh, senior equity analyst and fund manager at uh, davy aiden donnelly and research professor with the ESRI, Alan Barrett. Thank you both very much for coming in this evening. Coming up, Head of Strategic Investment at Fexco, Tony Wilson gives his advice to businesses looking to invest internationally. Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. A communication misstep can start with how you step into a room. Stumble and your words made too. If you want to be one step ahead, stroll. Even the word suggests that you're on a roll. Stride and great strides will follow. Communication is more than words. At three, we're experts in every aspect of the business of communication. As one of the world's biggest telecom companies, we provide innovative communication solutions to international businesses. So for top expertise, walk this way. Speak to the experts on 3.ie forward slash we speak business. 3. We speak business. By making someone else's life better, you'll make a real difference to your own. Lily is a world-leading biopharmaceutical company, and our growing site near Kinsale is playing a key role in pioneering the next generation of innovative, life-enhancing medicines for those who need them. With a strong pipeline, we're looking for operators, engineers, scientists, laboratory analysts, quality assurance, and regulatory professionals. If you are interested in being part of a company that's determined to make life better, think about Lily. For more information, go to lily.ie. If you loves your metal, like I loves me metal, insure your car with Aviva. Switch now and get eight weeks free and 20% off if you buy online. Now, let's listen to that backwards. Yeah, sounds savage by Aviva. Aviva, for what matters to you. Acceptance criteria, terms and conditions apply. Eight weeks free is equivalent to 15.38% discount. Eight weeks free and 20% online discount available until December 31st, 2014 to new Aviva customers with a minimum of one year's no claims discount. All discounts applied subject to a minimum premium of €280. Aviva Direct Ireland Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Car insurance is underwritten by Aviva Insurance Limited. The Currency with Nick Bowman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years.
Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman, on this Easter Sunday. Don't forget to get in touch and have your say. Email thecurrency at newstalk.ie or you can tweet us at thecurrencynt. Now, if you are or know an entrepreneur who has a family business, a startup, a chain that keeps on growing, or even just a good business idea, this next segment is for you because Tony Wilson, Head of Strategic Investment at Fexco, is in the studio with me tonight to share his insight on how SMEs can assess global investment and take their business to the next level. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to meet you. We've covered the plight of uh, SMEs thoroughly on this show, from lack of uh, available credit to pre-crash debt and possible debt forgiveness programs. Firstly, what is your perception of the current blockage in uh, the SME economy? Um, Is it really just this debt loan catch, or is it that SMEs don't really want to borrow at the moment? I think it's a combination of of both. Uh, SMEs are frightened to borrow because they're frightened of interest rates potentially going up in the not-too-distant future. Now, we could be looking at interest rates increasing in a year, two years' time. But not only that, the SME market is finding it harder and harder to get the retail banks to give them advances to help them expand their businesses. the, The good old days of loans just being handed out are long gone, and these SMEs are finding it tougher and tougher to find credit. And how do you think Irish entrepreneurs can access the, those opportunities available to them? Uh, is, is there an opportunity to go for outside investment? Uh, clearly, there are two major banks or th- two or three major banks in Ireland that are providing credit. But uh, are there other places they can be looking to go? Well, the areas they can look at, Nick, you know, we, we particularly look at clients who wish to trade internationally yes. know, and this is where the focus has to be because we can continue to look at our domestic markets and try and grow our businesses domestically but more and more businesses are turning internationally to see where they can grow and a lot of businesses are frightened of the exchange rate volatility but not only that if they take a forward contract many of the current suppliers will ask for an immediate deposit uh, to take a risk uh, on that currency and that is a loan or a shall we call it a contingent liability on their banking facilities and that will impact somebody's ability to borrow from their bank so customers should look at alternative sources for that finance you know there are many out there that will help you uh, gain those finance tools to help you trade internationally without affecting your bottom line. So effectively what you're saying is if they're looking to trade internationally and, and to cover the, the possible risk of the currency moving, they're having to take some co- kind of contingent liability uh, that, that, that affects their bank borrowing capacity at the moment. Absolutely. Normally when someone takes a forward contract, because if you don't protect that volatility against the currency rate, You could be losing profit. You could make some, but mostly you'll tend the risk of losing uh, some costs or your sales price won't be achieved depending if your currency rates go against you. But if you take a forward contract, normally a bank or a a third party will ask you for a deposit. That may be 10, 15% or even 5%. And that is an upfront cost that has to be paid immediately. But if you're using a retail bank, for example, they may well take that as a facility against your overdraft limit. Right, so that's that's quite an impediment to uh, to actually going out and doing it. So, what has your experience been in the Irish market with Irish businesses doing business abroad? Are they are they shying away from protecting one of the biggest risks that they have, which is obviously currency risk? Well, you may guess, Nick. You know that I've been about in this market for some considerable time, mainly in, in the UK, and I've come into Ireland to look to bring in a set of products which will help these entrepreneurs. Uh, there are people who will actually give you forward contracts without that need. Uh, to have that deposit. But you've got to be careful. You've got to choose a partner 
who has the financial background to be able to help you that will give you advice. Yeah, I would encourage SMEs to look at uh, strong financial companies that can give them forward contracts that can help them get that surety of the price today. Because after all, you know, if you're buying something overseas, you want to know how much it's going to cost you in euro today. And in six months time, if it's being delivered, you want to know the exact cost then as well. And so our advice is shop about, speak to specialists, see what advice is out there on the market and make sure you're not wasting money. And, and how complex is it? Because, you know, you're talking about people that have built their own businesses that are used to managing their, their own business, finding uh, buyers for their products uh, and finding raw materials to make those products. But they might view uh, hedging a currency contract as being something outrageously complicated or complex. Um, you know, what would you say to that? How, do you, how would you respond? You know, you, you've never said truer words. You know, people associate foreign currency forwards as being a risk product and therefore complicated. At the end of the day, what you're actually doing is asking someone to give you a price today for the delivery of a currency or the sale of a currency in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a year's time. It doesn't matter how long it's out. All you're doing is you're asking for a price today. What you may be asked for is to put up some collateral. As I said before, it could be 5 to 15%. But working with the right partner, that cash flow impact may not be needed just now. So it's very simple. Speak to the right people, get the right advice, and make sure you've got your financials in order because people will want to look at your balance sheet. They will want to look at your profit and loss. But at the end of the day, it's very, very simple. That was uh, Tony Wilson, Head of Strategic Investment at Fexco, uh, who joined me in the studio this evening um, with, some, I think, some very salutary advice for uh, SMEs looking to uh, trade abroad and not take additional risks uh, with their with their balance sheets. After the break, we'll have our usual overview of international markets, so please stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. Now, as always, it's time for our international markets update, and this week we're looking at volatility, uh, welcoming Anthony uh, Limbrick from 36 South Capital Advisors, who's going to talk about tail risk hedging. Um, very interesting subject, Anthony. Would you mind just running us through what, uh, what tail risks are and what tail risk hedging is all about? Okay, I'd like to use an analogy um, that we use often with investors, is that uh, you know, we come to a river, and um, we look at the river and there's a sign saying average depth six feet and say we're six foot four six foot five we think well okay we can cross that river it's no problem but the problem is that average may encompass a point in the river which is 11 feet deep and the problem is if we continue to walk across that river and uh, step into that 11 foot deep part of the river it's likely we'll drown and that's sort of the analogy we use for tail risk hedging is that it's um, it is to protect against those events that can actually completely sabotage the um, strength of the portfolio. So effectively what you're saying is that these are events that can, can, can sink you uh, and cause you uh, irreparable damage in, in your portfolio and they, they are things that you need to be aware of and protect against. That's correct. And uh, the problem that people have with these strategies is that uh, invariably it is structured using options and options, when you buy them, they have uh, something called time decay, which is 
essentially a drag on the performance of that strategy, which means there's lots of little losses um, that make the strategy quite difficult to hold, despite the fact that uh, when you come to that event, it can pay out quite substantially to more than offset um, losses in the portfolio. Um, it's quite a challenging strategy to hold, but once investors are educated as to the the correlation benefits, that is negative correlation when um, when you need it, um, then it does make its way into portfolios. And it is interesting that it's now becoming um, a significant proportion of large institutional portfolios. So effectively, this is just spending, it's like a bit like an insurance policy, you're spending, you're, 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 you're racking up uh, fairly small but constant losses whilst you're investing in the strategy, but if the event actually occurs, that's when you hope to get paid. That's correct. And it's interesting that uh, if you do rebalance your portfolio on a regular basis despite that creating incremental losses in the interim um, in fact actually uh, this product which looks like it has negative returns actually has a positive expected return through the investment cycle and so uh, why is i mean I, I understand the the river analogy but why is the strategy necessary we've had you know perhaps our, our one in 100 year event in uh, with in 2008 uh, do investors really need to have this kind of insurance um, you know, back in 2006, there was a large government-linked organisation, uh, I won't say who it was, who put out a report that speculated that potentially volatility was finished because the central banks had control of the cycle. And uh, it's interesting that uh, in today's environment, there is an emerging consensus that central banks have solved the problem of volatility within portfolios. Um, we are naturally contrarian and, you know, we can see, uh, we don't know what will happen but uh, if you know complacency builds up to a, a level sufficient, we could see some event whereby portfolios are really stressed. In that situation, it's absolutely critical to have those sort of strategies which protect you, of which tail risk is one. And uh, we've seen volatility being uh, compressed. Volatility is a measure of uh, the, the rate of change or the frequency of change of, uh, of, of prices in the stock market. Volatility has been suppressed really since 2008. Um, I would be definitely an advocate of tail risk hedging because I think the the events occur more frequently than uh, than than traditional models forecast and tend to be larger. But what has affected uh, the, this compression of volatility? Why, why has it occurred, and, and why why haven't they solved it in that case? Um, yeah, well, central banks have obviously been sponsoring um, the performance of financial assets uh, in order to hold the value of collateral up and to obviously um, spur banks to lend again and to turn the economies around. Um, markets have reacted by pricing that in. And uh, so where there used to be a large risk premium for investing in an asset because a lot of that risk has seemingly been taken away by the central banks, these risk premiums have narrowed. Um, and that means that uh, markets have been quite low in terms of volatility and especially equity markets uh, have really struggled to go lower. However, every time you know we try to go lower and central banks come in and support markets, um, that creates moral hazard within those markets, which actually incentivizes people to take more risk than they should and take more risk than they should at returns that are not appropriate for that asset. And do you think the, um, the, the, the sort of black swan theory then, the, the prediction of the unpredictable can be covered by sort of tail risk hedging i mean is this a strategy just to uh, to really protect against things that are that are unseen at the moment uh you know we are a tail opportunities manager so we actually can see uh 
tail opportunities both in terms of the downside and bear markets but also in terms of the upside as well um, you know for example back in the 1990s there was a you know a very large uh, bull market you know a bubble in tech stocks and that sort of environment you can actually make very good money out of as well so we don't see it as necessarily um, just about protecting against the downside um, there's definitely more to be had out of the strategy than just uh, protecting portfolios and uh, look just moving on to um, high frequency trading which we, which hit the press uh, a couple of weeks ago and was also become quite sort of popular uh, amongst um, uh, people in financial markets high frequency trading as I understand is is really just uh, uh, a, 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 the creation of a two tier market via computer systems um, that are linked very closely to the, to the exchanges that allow um, uh, banks, big, large banks have been willing to pay for that, uh, that proximity to, uh, to actually get an advantage on, on everyone else. Is that, is that a sort of correct or, or naive description of what's going on? I think that's appropriate. Uh, I mean, I do think there is an issue where um, market players have more information on market flows than others and they have them before those other players. Um, you know, I think that you have to differentiate between the different strategies within high-frequency trading. There are some high-frequency traders who take on risks, you know, and supply liquidity to the market. And then there are some that are manipulating markets and actually um, taking money off uh, retail investors' hands. So, I mean, I, I'm not... Uh, averse to all high-frequency traders, I th do think you need to differentiate. But it, it is clear that there are some that are um, uh, that shouldn't exist. So, yeah, so I think the differentiation there is some are skimming pennies off every trade whilst, whilst others are actually providing pools of liquidity. Um, do, do those pools of liquidity exist in sharply downtrending markets? Because uh, that would be my fear with that, is that it's, it's fine to say that you provide liquidity, but liquidity is one of those risks that, um, that you, you know, you, you, it's like an umbrella. You, you need it when, the, uh, when it's raining, not when the sun shines. And the question is, do you have it when it's raining? Well, I think, you know, this has not really been tested and we had a first indication of the vulnerability of the, the current market set up back in, uh, in May 2010 in the flash crash where all of a sudden uh, there was no liquidity available to the market. Um, and I think, again, this actually highlights why, why tail risk hedging is important within a portfolio because if that liquidity does disappear, I mean, if you are... Intel strategies, you will actually be supplying liquidity to that market whilst monetizing profitable positions. That was uh, Anthony Limbrick, Principal and Portfolio Manager at uh, 36 South Capital Advisors, uh, who are experts in uh, tail risk strategies. And uh, Anthony gave us a great summary of uh, high frequency trading there, which uh, I think will be in the news uh, um, and certainly uh, is impacting uh, investors' trust of markets. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's all we have uh, time for for this week's show. My, my thanks to all of those who contributed to our panellists and also to producer Aoife Gillivan. I'll be back next week at 6pm, but until then, enjoy the last few hours of Easter Sunday. Take care and farewell.